what makes stories powerful is we can find ourselves living into the experience of the character. It's not the specific environment, genre of story, or the topic of nonfiction work. It's to learn the lesson experientially, but vicariously. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today we are going to talk about how to mend our broken public discourse through stories. And oh boy, do we need this today. It seems like every month that goes by, every week that goes by, every day that goes by, there is more and more vitriol in the public discourse around so many vital issues that we all are facing on a day-to-day basis. And I think very important that we begin to look at how we might unwind some of this and return to a certain level of civility. And to help us do that and open our minds to other ways that we could be thinking about our communication. I have invited to our podcast today, Lars Emmerich. Now, Lars is an entrepreneur, a musician, investor, athlete, retired fighter pilot, and an international number one best-selling author. And he is the creator of the million-selling Sam Jamison series. And he lives with his family in Denver, Colorado. And I'm just going to let the interview speak for itself because we cover a lot of ground in talking about how we can do better at talking and communicating. Enjoy. So Lars, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you so much. Privilege and a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Well, it's delightful to have you here. I'm so happy. And, you know, I was checking you out on Goodreads and you definitely have some people reading your books. And it looks like your books have been shelved about 10,000 times. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And average rating is four stars, which, you know, considering all the possibilities on social media, I think that's pretty impressive. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, (laughs) But really excited me about, because obviously most of our listeners are not writing nonfiction. Yeah. uh, There's certainly crossover. But what really intrigued me about your idea of what you might want to talk about coming to the author's corner today is this idea of how writers can mend our broken public discourse through stories. Because if anything becomes more and more clear every day, it's just how broken our public discourse is. It is. Yeah, it is. It is a smidge dicey these days, (laughs) for sure. And not that it hasn't been in the past. I mean, you can find a number of periods, even in the last century, when we've had really, really deep divides, you know, as a country and as a world. And I think it happens for 
natural reasons. I think we, I think we're tribal. I think that was adaptive as we were developing as a species. I think if you didn't fit in with your group, I think that was a survival risk. It was hard, pink and soft, and you don't have claws or fangs and you run slow and got this big brain to carry around. So we have to work together to survive. And if you got kicked out of your group for saying the wrong things, believing the wrong things, then man, you were at risk. You were going to get eaten by the wolves or something. So I think we evolved this really deep need to be connected with the group. And it causes us to sort of defend our ideas as if we were defending ourselves. And things really shift when that becomes the focus. And it really, like, we really tend to ossify on our us versus them kind of spectrum. And we lose track of a shared element of humanity, which is a bummer. I was going to say, do you think that, because in my perception is that social media has really amplified these tendencies. Yes, I think so. But I think they're symptomatic as well as causal. I think one of the big things that happened is with the advent of cable news rather than broadcast news. Ah, well, as a former journalist, you'll get no argument here. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I I think I I leapt ahead too far. I think you're absolutely right. Please continue. Mm -hmm. No, I think that in the broadcast days, in order to maintain an FCC license, you had to perform some element of public service. And the news was your like your loss leader of public service. And that allowed it to be certainly not completely straight down the middle. There were differences between the big three, but they were subtle and they were not nearly as blatant. And I think they were not engineered to be tribal. Yes. And there was actually, if you wanted to maintain your FCC license, if you presented a point of view, you were required to give equal time to an alternate point of view. And that was called the Fairness Doctrine. And that was removed at the end of the Reagan administration. Yeah. Yeah, that had some unfortunate consequences, I think. Yeah. And I just maybe remind our listeners that Ron Reagan's campaign manager was Roger Ailes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think that's a relevant 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 point out. Yeah. I'm making quotey sounds. Coincidence? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Founder of Fox News. Okay. Continue. Anyway, you were saying, now that we know why I'm in. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I think cable news discovered what all for-profit news outlets discover, which is that it's really about outrage. And the more angry you keep your followership, the more engaged you keep them. And the more eyeballs are on your newscast, which means the more dollars you can charge for your, you know, for your advertisement. I don't think that's inherently evil. I think it just has some unsavory consequences where, you know, I think the news outlets have aligned themselves on one side or the other of the spectrum. And I think fairness is completely out the window. I was at the gym recently and it's rare when both the red channel and the blue channel on the cable news are played simultaneously, but they were played simultaneously side by side, one screen for another covering at that particular moment, the same story and the marquee on the bottom was the precise opposite takeaway on the same story. 
So we've lost this common reference point. We're not starting from fact. We're starting from propaganda as our beginning point. Yes. And it, it is on both sides. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I don't have more patient for the blue channel, even though I tend to agree more with the blue side, but I don't have any more patience for either end of the spectrum, considering that I was the journalism that I was taught looked nothing like what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember learning in history class about this terrible phenomenon, maybe around the turn of the century called what, what do they call it? Yellow journalism. This idea that. Um, correct. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, just printing the most salacious thing you could possibly dredge up was it sold newspapers just like it sells advertising slots on television. It's not the healthiest thing, particularly when like there's this feature to our senses that if we see or hear something, our mind just assumes that it's true. And so when you are only consuming information, quote unquote, from one set of sources, you're not educating yourself, you're indoctrinating yourself. And there's interesting studies out, I'm sure you've seen about, even if you say to someone, what I'm about to tell you is false, but let me tell you something that's false. Later, you'll remember the thing, but forget that it's false. So you'll carry forward as if it were true. So the only real criteria we have for believing something, and we can't help it, not because we're dumb. It's not because some of us are, are too dumb to understand reality. It's because we're all wired this way, that if we hear propaganda, for example, on one side or another or against one side or another, we believe it. Even though we may consciously know we shouldn't, we still hold on to it as wow. if it were fact. Now, so I, thought carry this around. Say, I thought you were going to say seeing is believing. You're saying hearing is believing? Both. I mean, if, it okay. po- I mean, if it comes in through the senses, you know, you right. can read it if you hear it. And then TV news is the worst because you see it and you hear it. <laughs> That's right. And you see a face associated with it and all mm-hmm. the nonverbals, very serious and dour nonverbals of the blue team talking bad about the red team or the red team talking bad about the blue team and all of those nonverbal I mean, we have so much brain real estate associated and devoted to deciphering the meaning behind facial expressions. Man, we're getting like triple whammied with just deepening divide and really troublesome. I mean, it really is propaganda. It's designed to give you, to keep you outraged to sell advertising, and it's designed to keep you voting in a particular way, regardless of how terrible your team is behaving. Anything is fine as long as we defeat those evil other team people, right? Even though some of them live like next door to us, right? We yeah. our kids yeah. play together and, but no, they want to destroy the country where they live, but we don't want to destroy the country where we live, right? Really? Right. Yeah. So, okay. So now I think we have, you have done a great job of articulating the problem of the conflicts and public discourse and yeah, yeah. made great distinctions. So how does story help us begin to heal this or find a way out? Yeah. The first thing I think is it's useful is to understand that we all think in terms of stories. We're constantly telling ourselves stories inside of our heads. We can't stop it. There's no off switch for the storyteller in your brain. And the storyteller in your brain is always telling you something about what's happening now. What kind of person am I right now? What kind of 
reality am I living into? What kind of values am I living into? How can this be perceived externally? And what kind of a headline would that be? We're all doing this all the time. And so this is the language that we use to derive meaning and to create meaning out of our, you know, out of our, our reality. Like if you, those people who have the corpus callosum severed between left and right hemispheres, there's some interesting experiments done using the features that those people have where there's a side of your brain, the only job, its only job, a part of your brain is to make up a story about what's happening now. And it may or may not be true. And the different sides of the brain have different stories about what's happening right now. So our brains are tribal. Our brains are tribal. Tribal yeah. propaganda in our own brains. Oh in my our God. Own brains. No wonder we're confused. That's right. And it's that link <laughs> between the two halves of our brain that allows these stories to compete with each other in a healthy way and to collaborate with each other in a healthy way and to arrive at a closer approximation of reality rather than a ossified tribal wow. version of it. But um, and there's, a, there's an interesting side effect, I think, which is that if you want to help somebody understand, don't tell them a fact, tell them a story. Tell them a story. Absolutely. There's an interesting example. So since we're talking red versus blue, my family's deeply red. My parents were deeply religious and you know, my dad's gone now. My mom remains red and deeply red and deeply religious. And so my family, deeply red, deeply religious. My mom remains so. She lives with my sister now. In that environment, there was a definite story about what America means. What is the United States? The United States is opportunity. It's resource, pure and simple. If any outcome you dream for your life goes the story, you can engineer it. And if you're not achieving those outcomes, the only thing wrong is that you're not working hard enough. There are no barriers in your way like there are in other countries. Everything is before you. It is only up to you to bootstrap yourself, get busy, get going, work hard, and good things will happen. And by and large, I mean, I grew up in lower middle class white America and I found that to be the case. I studied hard. I got A's, went to a good school, studied hard, had a good career, worked hard. So there was nothing in my experience to make me aware that that might not be everybody's experience. Right? Yeah, I, right. I had no conflicting data points uh-huh. about this version yeah. of America. Mm-hmm. And as a result, my feeling, my thought, my sense was that people who were living in poverty, were doing so because they lacked some kind of moral component, like a work ethic, right? Because again, this is opportunity. And if you're not making it here, it's just because you're not doing it, just because you're not, you're not working hard enough. So the story went. I moved to a new place. My wife, when I was an F-16 pilot, very busy job. It's hard to have a career when you move around. And so to get out of the house and make a little money and have a little fun, she worked in a gift shop downtown in a state south of the Mason-Dixon line. Beyond that, I won't get geographically specific because it's too easy to finger point when you do that. But she tells a story once of being in the shop, stocking shelves, running the cash register or whatever with the owner. And the owner was a kind, sweet, 
really nice old white lady. And the shop was on Main Street. This is like a quaint little street through town. And I guess they had this gift shop maybe 20 years or so. It's been there quite a while. In one day walks a black lady in her Sunday vest. It's not brand spanking shiny new. It's somewhat aged, but well taken care of. And she walks to the counter and asks for a job application. And the owner is very kind and reaches behind the desk and hands the lady a job application. And she fills it out very assiduously. She takes great pains to get all the, all the information correct. She's chatting with the owner. She's very articulate. She's educated. She used to teach in the school system. She's retired. She wants to make a little money to help out her daughter and son-in-law. And very nice conversation. My wife was thinking she'd be fun to work with. I'd enjoy working with this lady. So she thanks the owner kindly, hands in the application, walks out the door. And it's still hard to tell the story, but the owner dropped the application in the trash can. And she blushed as she did so. My wife's jaw was on the floor. And we were from Colorado. We had never lived in the South before. You know, we had the Smith of America in our mind about what it meant to live here and be an American in the land of opportunity. And the owner said, it's just so terrible, but all of my customers would stop coming in if I hired a black lady. So that one story mm. that my wife told me when she got home that night erased a lifetime of myth mm. about what is it really like here in America? Mm. Well, it's really like a lot of different things, depending on who you are and where you are mm -hmm. and into which family you were born and what's the color of your skin and what's your native language and what's your religious background and what's your political background. There's a whole bunch of different Americas that are all a real experience for somebody. And you can put any kind of labor and employment statistics in front of anybody on planet Earth. It will great. It'll be like reading the phone book or the tax code. Thank you very much for the information. I'm not going to change anything about my day. But that story gave me human empathy. Maybe for the first time for an entire class of people who, I mean, this lady wasn't asking to be an astronaut. She wasn't asking to be a brain surgeon. She wasn't asking to be a lawyer. She was asking to run a cash register. And she couldn't do it because of the way the opportunity was stacked against her in this corner of America. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's understanding things at the individual human experience level that really lets us have empathy and understanding, and it allows us to approach each other as humans rather than as opponents or objects or statistics or God help us, evil incarnate, right? <laughs> the bad guys. So tell a story. Don't tell a fact. Yeah. And, you know, another thing too is people remember stories mm. and they forget statistics and numbers or they get them yes. you know, just wrong enough that it can change the whole thing they're saying. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But, but stories are memorable. And because of that, we carry them 
with us even long after we hear the story. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing the power of, and I think what makes stories powerful, whether it's a science fiction story or a thriller or a mystery or a romance, what makes them compelling is that we can find ourselves living into the experience of the character. It's not necessarily the specific environment or the specific genre of story or even the topic of nonfiction work. It's really about being able to live into the experience that another person had and to learn the lesson experientially, but vicariously. And when you can ride that same emotional roller coaster that somebody else has ridden, when you can imagine, I don't know what I would do in this scenario. When you gain some appreciation for the nuance that's inherent to anything, anything useful or real, that only, you know, ideology in its pure form never survives first contact with reality ever. doesn't matter what your ideology is. <laughs> right. It won't survive contact. Right? There's, there's <laughs> so. some exception, you know, that to say, well, in this one particular case, it went differently, right? Or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that there is, and I don't understand exactly what it is about reading a story or often listening to a story. It seems to work both ways. But we human beings seem to have a natural inclination to deposit ourselves right into the shoes of the character or you know the narrator depending on who the story is about right so but i mean we tend to immediately imagine ourselves in the situation or start to question maybe that's that part of the brain that's making up a story every, maybe, with, yeah. but like what would i have done or how would you know but there is like, it seems like we just jump into that frame of mind. Like, I don't think I've ever been consciously reading something and thinking, I am now going to imagine myself as if I am the exactly. character, right? Yeah. We don't do that. So do you know anything about why we do that? I mean, I know you're not a brain scientist, you're an author, you know, uh, <laughs> but you know, you seem to, I'm going to ask whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it's that we know what it's like to be us, sort of. We're not right. <laughs> in our society, we're not really all that great at watching our own emotions rise and fall, watching our own thoughts come and go. Usually, we get on the first thought train that stops. No matter where it's going, we just hop right on and we wake up miles later and go, Why am I? Why am I so angry? What am I even mad about? Like, what's happening? We're a little bit unconscious about becoming closely identified with the emotions and the thoughts that we're feeling. And so maybe it's that same phenomenon that allows us to really live into or imagine ourselves living into a character or, you know, the subject of a story. But there's another twist to this, though, and this is really important. It's called mentalization, I believe. is I'm not a psychologist, but I believe that's the term for it, where you're not just imagining how you would behave in a certain set of circumstances, given your X number of years of life on the earth with your DNA and your parenting and your education and your, right, your career. It's imagining as if your path 
leading to this point had been similar to another person's path. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. like, yes, um, yes. You're not taking your tools and resources and your clearly superior judgment and knowledge about a situation. <laughs> it's imagining what if I had been actually physically abused instead of just emotionally abused, right? Or what if, right. what if I had spent my entire adult life working menial jobs that are way below my IQ and my ambition, but because nobody would hire me because I'm skin color X or Y, or because, I mean, what if in my country, the drug cartels are beheading people? What would I do? Would I care about some law written in some book about some line in the sand? Or would I just dash across that line with my family, thankful that at least they're not chopping off heads here in the new place, right? It gives you a different way to understand a situation. And it gives you the ability to recognize the shared humanity and the shared values that you hold with somebody who appears on the surface to be vastly different than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so important to be able to. And uh, that constantly. really is the key to empathy, right? Yeah. Not just empathizing with people who are just like you, because that's not the right. kind of stretch that we're asking that's right. for. There's no stretch at all. Requires, right? And I think that's such a brilliant point that you're not just looking at like, would I have done this? But you're looking at the circumstances that led up to whatever choices. And then it yeah. enables you to understand that the choices might have actually be the exact right, you know, like, yeah. the, like the best choice that that yes. person had or. And, Among and these I terrible that, options, you chose the least terrible of them, right? Most yeah, likely. yeah, yeah. And I think that it also, like, I remember learning this lesson in a very powerful way when I was doing a summer workshop at the National Theater Conservatory in Denver, actually. Oh, fun. And one of our participants, I just was so confused because, you know, young guy, like 28, this is like early 1990s. And I just remember thinking, this is so rude and disruptive, and I don't understand what's up with this guy. And I did not think that he was a very good guy, you know, Mm. because I thought it was very uncool. And I found out talking with him on the last day that he had AIDS. Wow. And the medicine that he was taking had made him ill. And so he had needed to leave class from time to time. And the teachers had been aware, but none of the students had been told. Mm, Yeah. And for me, it taught me that you never know what people are dealing with. And so before you judge them for whatever behavior you're witnessing, at least for me, I remind myself, just give a, a little bit of space to imagine that there could be something that they're dealing with that's a miracle that they're even showing up at all. Yeah. The beautiful key thing for me that stood out as you described that was when you said, I learned from talking with him. <laughs> right? Thank you. Yes. Like you I- talk with him. And that's sort of the other, we get into this mode where we find dredge something up on DuckDuckGo or we sit in front of Fox News or MSNBC and 
gosh, there's just there's so much evil on the other side. And we get into this mode of bad faith, meaning we don't assume that a person on the other side of this imaginary line has the same level of integrity, morality, intelligence, and good intention that we have. We assume they have lower intelligence, they are not moral, they're looking to actively destroy something we hold dear, and they, you know, they, they want to destroy something, they want to destroy this country or something. Bad faith ruins everything. Mm. And it took, for you, like it took some assumption that, hey, this is not a lesser form of being because he keeps getting up and leaving in class. This is a being, this is a person, and probably, just like me, has goals and dreams and hopes and fears and insecurities and ambitions and skills and weaknesses and is in the process of learning lessons and in the process of applying lessons learned in the past. And maybe there's some common ground that can be found by just having an interaction, right? But you know, I have to say, when I was telling the story, the thing I noticed is what took you so long? (laughs) You talked with him at the picnic. Because the other thing I had noticed was he just seemed so angry every day. And I couldn't understand what he was so angry about. Uh, Yeah. Well, you're 28 years old and you have AIDS. I'd yeah. be angry. Yeah. And, and you know, also the stigma that, associated with it. Right? Uh, yeah. In the early years. It was like. Yeah, it was because. This, yeah, this was early 90s. I mean, mm. we didn't know that much. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, as I was telling the story to you, I was admonishing myself for taking so damn long. Yeah. And I think I remember even after talking to him, I thought to myself, why didn't you have this conversation with him a month ago? Yeah, but there's this is a beautiful opportunity to give yourself a little grace because <laughs> like we're in the same morass as everybody else. We're right. bombarded with all of these messages day in and day out. Like it's plus we're driving in traffic and somebody inadvertently cuts us off and we're like, ah, how did they know I was having a terrible day to begin with? And they cut me off. <laughs> we're still like the reactions will still happen inside yeah. of us. Mm-hmm. I think the key is being able to watch them rise. Feel that rush of, I want to break something or somebody and let it pass because it will. We don't have to live into it. We can let it pass. And then we can live from our values, right? Which might be, hey, I bet you there's something I can learn from you. And I bet you there's something interesting about you that I can discover. I bet you there's some common ground. I bet you there's a way that you're thinking about all the problems I'm thinking about, but in a different way that'll help me incorporate all of this. But I only have access to all of that. If I get good at this skill of seeing and feeling the way my mind and body and heart rate and adrenaline react to these various situations, and also observing the way that just goes away, Mm -hmm. unless Mm -hmm. I dive in and live in and speed up and flip the guy off and cut me off, right? Or do any of the things that we is instinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it can hook you, right? It's like it can hook you. You're on the train. You're on the angry train. The angry train stopped and you just jumped right on, right? The same thing that that allows us to dive into a character's world. Well, it just lets us dive into this anger world. But when you give yours, like when you watch that happen for yourself and you observe somebody having a moment, right? A public meltdown or behaving badly, 
it sort of gets us off our high horse, gets us off our soapbox a little bit and lets us have a little grace for somebody else who might be having a moment like we all have had and will yeah. have again in the future. I'm thinking about when I had children, because I remember before I had children and I would be on an airplane and a baby would be screaming and I just, be thinking, oh my God, somebody shut that kid up. Like, why is that kid screaming? It's driving me crazy. Why did the parents even bring them on the plane? <laughs> yeah. When I had children, I'm like, oh, and I felt that, you know, mortification <laughs> and I just, yeah. you know, looking at, seeing all the people scowling at me and thinking, oh my God. And it also changed my attitude, you know, like I would be a mother and, you know, and babe crying baby. And she'd like, look at me like, I'm so sorry. And I'd be like, it's okay. Can I help with anything? You know, you realize like so many things that people do that we find upsetting might not even be within their control. (laughs) You know, some of the things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's a, a funny thing about all of this, I think, which is, all of the important life lessons that I have learned the hard way can be summarized in a cliche, <laughs> which is a little bit annoying as a writer because we're always looking for I know and interesting ways to say the these things. The worst thing about cliches is how true they are. Oh my gosh, and how much they fit. You yeah. like you've struggled to the top of this wisdom mountain and you look out in the vista and it says, <laughs> walk a mile in the other guy's shoes. <laughs> We're, we're all in this together, right? There's no place to hide on a round plan. Like, thanks for that, buddy. Right. Years that that one did take you to cook that one up. The years to you know to learn it the hard way after hearing it a thousand times. And yeah, um, yeah, I think that is something too that you know comes with maturity. Can also come with meditation. By the way, you know, learning to separate yeah. your thoughts and feelings from yourself truth and the self yeah, yeah. <laughs> those things have really helped me i know and me too. and story right yeah me too yeah so important the way that we interpret the events in our lives like you know anybody who's ever been in a relationship your partner does something and boy there's a lot of different ways you can interpret it and the way that you wind up interpreting it that's another way of saying the story that you end up telling yourself about it, that can be the end of a relationship. Absolutely. Or that can be a gateway to something deeper and more powerful and more meaningful. And often it's, you know, like in that first moment, it has the potential to be both. Either, yeah. And yeah. where you take it really. And if you keep arriving at an impasse, if you keep butting heads, maybe it's red team or blue team. Maybe it's husband and wife, right? Significant other. Maybe it's a business partner. If you keep butting heads and you just can't seem to reconcile, at least you don't understand everything you need to understand. And probably the other person is in the same boat, but at least you need to get more curious. Like, tell me what this means for you. Tell me what the experience is for you without making a value judgment about you had no right to feel that. Well, right. I also had I also had no choice to feel that either. It just right. happened to me like rain from the sky, right? I didn't have right. any, any volition in this whatsoever. So understanding where, like just getting really curious about what is the other experience 
mm-hmm. and getting really honest about your own yes intentions right? and your own limitations that is hard like that's hard to do that first at all to admit hey maybe i'm not as you know mature as i as i could be this scenario and i wonder if there's a new and better way that i can view this that you know is there some different hilltop that i can look down on the scene and things will make more sense to me that is just i mean i don't know any deep meaningful lasting relationship that didn't have this curiosity and this willingness to be ruthlessly but graciously honest with yourself about your own thoughts feelings and intentions and also gracious and curious about the other side's experience and when you're on that level it's almost like some sort of productive compromise is inevitable and it may not even be a compromise it may be oh we were heading in the same direction anyway right like we're going the same way why are we fighting what are we arguing about you know yeah, and Those I think it's really difficult to do that, though, if both partners aren't participating at mm. that level, right? I think that it takes person- more for sure. But in the beginning, it's almost always just one, mm. like just mm. one person. When two sides are fighting, it's not like you magically both decide to try empathy and understanding. <laughs> one of you has to like feel that rush of anger and I want to break something and let it pass. And then say, tell me more about that, right? Tell uh-huh. me more. Teach me what's happening in this situation. Like one person has to be the bigger person in order to shift the whole thing. Right. Um, right. And like, that's a set of skills that we can definitely learn. Mm-hmm. And, but I think it really comes back to behaving in good faith instead of in bad faith, right? Like this is not a bad person. Your spouse is not a bad person. Your neighbor is not a bad person. It's really the good versus evil thing. And I I sort of think that's a bill of goods, right? Yeah. I mean, if you follow me around on certain days, you go, that's an evil person. (laughs) Follow me around on other days, maybe in the same week, maybe other hours in the same day. I was going to say maybe the same day. Yeah. That's a good person, right? So what am I, good or bad? I don't know. Does it matter? I'm a person, right? I'm making the best of this complicated, hard, crazy world probably just like you are probably just like whoever's on the other side of this debate and most likely and it's surprising how often this happens if you list your top four or five values that you're pursuing in any sort of scenario and the other side lists their top four or five values that they're pursuing in any given scenario i bet you have at least three out of five in common. In most cases, you have four or five out of five in common. And maybe it's just slightly different ordering of the values, or maybe it's a slightly different interpretation of the issue. Right. Or the actions, the appropriate actions that are connected to the values. Exactly. Really where the conflicts live. Yeah. Yeah. There's another really, it's back to the bad faith. We just get into this mode where we lose sight of what we thought we were trying to do and the game becomes entirely about dunking on the other team or winning the verbal shouting match or winning a zero sum you were vanquished and gone forever so there's a thing that happens when a conflict erupts we 
subtly but very quickly, our goal shifts from doing the most right thing and achieving the best outcome to just flat winning. You just want to dunk on the other team. You just want to score points and make a complete straw man of their argument and ridicule them and show the world how dumb and evil they are. And we lose track that at the end of this little spat, we're still stuck here on the same rock. (laughs) (laughs) Not many places for all of us to hide from each other. So less, fewer and fewer as yeah. Well, wow. This has been such a stimulating and interesting conversation. And I think that we've really unpacked some great nuance around these ideas of, you know, polarization and how to find a way to communicate with people in a productive way. So I'm going to wrap up by asking you my favorite final question, which is, what did I not ask you that you wish I had? Why is it? conspiracy thriller author talking about healing the narrative? That's a good question, I think. Oh, I love that question. (laughs) I think it's because I feel complicit in this because I write stories about conspiracies and there are many, many more false conspiracy theories than there are true conspiracies. But I think in the process of having some fun in a thriller scenario. I've contributed to this sense that everything is a conspiracy, that nothing can be trusted. No one can be trusted. There is no source of truth. There is no source of goodness. And so I've seen the power of this little thing called empathy and understanding in my own personal life. And I sort of feel like Talking about this publicly might be a bit of atonement for my own contribution to the, to the state of public discourse, as meager as it might have been. It's, it's a it's a counterintelligence conspiracies with yeah, yeah. <laughs> with empathy with, with empathy. Yeah. yeah. Well, Lars, I have one more question for you. I know it. Yes, I know I asked my, but and just for our listeners, you won't see this, but I have to ask because. Lars is wearing a red and blue. And, <laughs> I am. And I just have to know if you did that on purpose. <laughs> I did not. Actually, it's a, I, um, yeah, that's great. I love it. I got this for Christmas from my better half, and I love the shirt. So I wore it. Well, it's very nice. I wish I had been clever enough to put on the red and blue shirt. So. Well, my curiosity is satisfied. So. <laughs> Well, Lars, thank you again for sharing your insight and wisdom with us on The Author's Corner. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 